And if we want to evolve, we got to get out of survival mode so that we can thrive. And and better self-regulation and increased self-awareness about your own internal processes and how to effectively respond to those internal processes so that you can still be the person you want to be. That's going to speed up the evolution of the human race. The NeuroFeed Podcast. How is clinical neurofeedback transforming lives? We talk with therapists, researchers, and home users. From the intersection of neuroscience and therapy, these interviews tell stories of discovery, empowerment, and learning to thrive. Today's guest is Mary Ammerman, PsyD BCN. Dr. Ammerman earned her undergraduate degrees in English and psychology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and her doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University. Mary believes that all people possess both the power and the ability to heal themselves. To assist with this process, she uses a combination of mindfulness, cognitive skills training, acceptance, and commitment therapy, neurofeedback, applied neuroscience, warmth, and humor in her practice. Mary also teaches introductory neurofeedback courses with Dr. Hamlin and mentors other neurofeedback providers throughout the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Yeah. Okay. Well, I definitely, no matter if someone, if no matter if I'm introducing the concept of neurofeedback to a client or if they have come to me specifically seeking out neurofeedback training, the explanation is really important. Absolutely. Because I want to make sure we're on the same page with our understanding. And one of the first things I want to tell people is that neurofeedback is a training, not a treatment. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because that's a really empowering part of our message. So unlike medicine that chemically hijacks your brain and forces it to do its bidding for as long as it's in your system, neurofeedback is a brain training. It's holding up a mirror to the brain and reflecting back its current operational pattern and then signaling it when it moves in a more efficient direction. Uh, So I like that because that puts all the responsibility of change back on the client, you know, and I am a collaborator and a resource and a coach, but there isn't anything magic about me. If anything changes in the client's life, it's because what they and their nervous system have done. And usually that change occurs outside of my office when they're presented with an opportunity to do it the same old way they've always done it or do it this new way we've been practicing and their brain decides to do it the new way we've been practicing. (laughs) So, um, And if you want to hear my, you know, kind of how I present it to people, I'm happy to run through that. But uh, I usually start out by saying that their brain and pretty much every person's brain is currently using the best pattern it could find. It may not be optional, I mean, optimal, but it works 
well enough to continue doing it. But if we can help the person's brain find a more efficient pattern that works better, feels better, uses less energy and results in better outcomes, then with enough repetition, your brain automatically wants to start doing things that way more often, which is really cool. It protects us both ways. Meaning if we accidentally ask your brain to do something that was less efficient than what it was currently doing, it might try it, not like it, and then go right back to what it was doing before because it can. Nothing is forcing it to do anything differently. This is just a suggestion. But if we manage to help your brain find a way of operating that's more efficient, then with enough repetition, it will start doing it that way. So that's what I love about neurofeedback. It is tapping into your brain's natural ability to change itself. And ultimately, it's a way of freeing ourselves from unhelpful or unhealthy patterns, whether that's due to painful life experiences or, you know, unhelpful thoughts or feelings. Or just, you know, having an excess of a certain type of brainwave or a lack of another one. Like your brain can free itself from those things. So, uh, and then I use the analogy of either we're going to go, we're going to take your brain to driving school or we're going to take your brain to yoga class. <laughs> you can use either one. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about yoga right now. So when things are going well. Your brain can smoothly and flexibly match its level of activation or level of arousal to, to the task at hand. And it can keep you there for as long as you need to, to complete the task. So you can both fall asleep and stay asleep. And then when you wake up, you can be alert and do whatever daily task you need to do. And you, when it's time to relax, you can just enjoy the moments and be in the moment. Right. So, but some of us, our brains get stuck either, either in the overactivation end of the arousal continuum or the underactivation end. Others of us, our brains flip flop between those problems. That's kind of like a, a car with a faulty cruise control where the, the car is either speeding up or slowing down when you don't want it to, but it has a hard time maintaining a steady speed. And then some people that maybe had early childhood trauma or are on the autistic spectrum, they just have brain areas that are operating in completely different speeds. So it's hard to transfer information effectively, right? So if, if you have any of those issues, if your brain is stuck in over arousal, if it's stuck in under arousal, if it flip flops between those problems, or if it basically has two arousal issues simultaneously, your nervous system can learn how to correct that by going to yoga class and practicing these different, what I call EEG yoga postures. So just like in a real yoga class where you go and you get in these interesting postures and you hold them for a little while, no one expects that you're going to walk around in downward dog all day long, every day for the rest of your life. But getting in that posture and holding it for a little while improves the flexibility and stability of your body when you're not in yoga class. Well, when we're doing neurofeedback, we're usually practicing some type of presence. 
either a nice open focus state where you're just floating in the present moment, a calm external focus where you're just right here, right now, focusing on the task at hand, or a narrower, more engaged focus. These are all ways that your brain stays present with the task it is currently doing. It's hard to stay present. No one's going to stay present all day long, and that wouldn't be advisable because if you stayed present all night long, you'd never go to sleep. But getting into one of these um, levels of presence and holding that for a little while improves the flexibility and stability of your brain waves when you're not in EEG training class, not in EEG yoga class. So it's body learning. And even though it involves your conscious awareness, some of it takes place outside of your conscious awareness. And so then you're, you're resetting your nervous system's baseline, basically, and helping restore that natural flexibility and stability that nervous systems are capable of. Mary, I really like how you talk about um, what we call the disordered arousal. I find that's one of the more challenging to help newer clinicians in neurofeedback understand. And I really liked how you talk about having two speeds at different places in the brain. I think that really helps make it sort of more concrete than just the historical of, you know, autism or developmental trauma. Right, right. And um, because usually, I mean, with good reason, so autistic people on the autistic spectrum tend to be born with a disruption from in the connection between sensory input brain areas and brain processing areas. People with early childhood trauma kind of acquire a disruption there because they're constantly being placed in unsafe feeling situations where they just have to very quickly respond to this incoming sensory uh, information and they don't have time to process it. So usually what happens with both those populations, their limbic structures and survival centers are wildly overactivated, and then their central executive networks are underactivated. Right. And that, that is a very adaptive pattern. If you happen to find yourself in a life-threatening situation, that is exactly right. what you want your brain to do. It's just not very adaptive when you're not in a life-threatening situation. I often, um, when I talk with parents about it, I liken it to, you know, being a tiger. They don't have the, the really the frontal, the frontal structures that humans have. And so, you know, if somebody who's experienced trauma, their limbic centers, which are what we share with our mammal family, that's what they exist on. And that's how they function. They're not trying to study in school. They're trying to find food and eat and survive. Right. They're stuck in survival mode. And it's like kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. And it's extreme. Uh, but in in its milder form, milder form, it might be run away, run away, run away. <laughs> this is not avoid, avoid, avoid here. Yes, yes. So we got. But what's really great is that your nervous system can learn to calm that down and be more discerning, more accurately discerning. We don't want to take the defenses mechanisms away. We just want to update them so that they're more accurate. Yeah, and and. You know, when you get the limbic system, you know, calming, then the frontal system can start doing its job and then your executive functioning and all of those things. All this all work. Yes. Do you survival mode, your central executive network doesn't really have a chance to do its thing. 
because they're too slow and they take too long. And so the back of the head is designed to overthrow the, the executives because you just got to do something fast, very quickly and reflexively to increase your odds of survival. But again, this is why we've got to be able to calm ourselves down if we want to have a choice about how we're going to respond instead of just running off reflexive automatic programming. And whether somebody's traumatized or not, that's one of our goals of neurofeedback is to help people have more freedom to choose how they're going to respond to their life events instead of just being locked into automatic pilot old conditioning. Yeah. I really like that. And I think, you know, I work a lot with kids. So getting, you know, they start to head into middle school and high school and that's when the, you know, executive functioning deficits really start to show. Um, and then parents go, okay, now it's time to deal with these emotional regulation issues. Um, and it's like, okay, well, we got to rebuild the bottom part and then, you know, start working on these higher level skills. Do you exactly. And, it, and again, I think this is, this might be jumping ahead to another question on our list, but it's sort of like, why is this such a beneficial therapeutic tool? And, and, you know, what could therapists expect? I mean, how could neurofeedback basically improve their outcomes? Well, it's because exactly what Leanne just said, all brain operations hinge upon how well your nervous system can regulate its arousal or its level of activation. If your activation is either too high or too low for the task at hand, you're not going to perform well. But if your arousal is in appropriate range, then your brain can do its best job for you. Right? So, so if you don't have, so we'll, we'll back up this way. Daniel Amen says your brain is your best asset. And if it works well, you work well. If your brain doesn't work well, you're going to have problems in your life. <laughs> and that's so true. So once you get a well-regulated brain is a well-functioning brain. And once you can improve your arousal regulation, then all brain op operations get better. Yeah. I and that's why it's a fundamental, it's a fundamental skill that like you were saying, all these higher order skills depend upon it's one of the reasons we uh anna and i have been saying this that you know neurofeedback ends up being sort of the last thing that people try right now because they don't always know about it until things are really tough but we so wish we get to the place where it becomes the first thing that people try when they start to see a system that can't regulate because then we can catch it early enough that everything can developmentally progress the way it should rather than having to kind of work backwards to get help them go forward um, yeah. Yay. That's what this podcast is for. Yes. That's what I mean. Go ahead. So well, when you're talking to, to say new, new clients, people coming in for neurofeedback, uh, I wonder if they have the question that occurs to me on a regular basis. And I, I don't know if there is an answer, but I wonder how you talk about if they ask, what is it about neurofeedback? What's actually happening? Why is my brain you know, why, why, why do people's brains respond over a period of time of, of multiple sessions to improve their functioning and, and go for a more optimal kind of setting? Why does well, that it's because of neuroplasticity. And I mean, I don't know if I have all the um, whys, but I can kind of talk about how. 
Sure. You know, I mean, it is a learning technique and the way you learn anything. So like if you learn to type or if you learn to play a musical instrument, when you were first learning the finger placements, you had to focus really hard and really think about where you're putting your hand. But with enough practice, so so those brain cells that are talking to each other, they fire together and then they wire together. So you're creating new like connections and, and pathways in the brain. And the um whatever experiences are sustained frequently and intensely repeated, your brain wires itself up to do that task more efficiently right so so with enough typing practice or guitar playing practice you can eventually it's like your fingers have a mind of their own and they know exactly where to go because that's been kind of hardwired in there you know and you don't have to think about it consciously anymore you can type without looking at the keyboard sometimes you can be talking to someone and typing you can certainly be singing and plus strumming the guitar and you don't have to think about it consciously anymore because your body just knows how to do it. <laughs> so that, and, you know, why does the brain want to find the most efficient pattern? I guess that's because of evolution. You know, it figured that out. Um, and it, it kind of, this is the other thing that's so, and I think, you know, my colleague, and mentor Ed Hamlin, he always talks about the brain being lazy, and and it is because it's always looking for shortcuts for things. That's why it likes to automate things as quickly as possible, so it can reserve um, resources for novelty. Our brains crave novelty, and that's also a survival thing. Anything, any new incoming information, our brains have to assess if is this like a friend or a foe. Is this a benefit or a threat, you know? So the brain likes to automate everything. So it frees up its awareness for anything new. Okay. And so that we're just harnessing that neuroplasticity process so that we can sculpt the person's brain in the direction they most want it to go. And it is good. I mean, so here's the thing. We talk about neuroplasticity like it's a wonderful thing because it is. But the truth is it's happening all the time, whether we realize it or not. And many of us, we don't mean to, we just accidentally end up practicing what we don't want mm -hmm. instead of intentionally practicing what we do want. It's kind of out of fear, out of fear in a way, like I'm, I'm worried. I don't want to be depressed, but I end up practicing depression or end up practicing anxiety. But the bad news is if your brain keeps experiencing those things over and over and over again, it thinks, oh, we're in the depression business or, oh, we're in the anxiety business. So we got to devote more brain cells to carrying out this operation. But if you take it to yoga class and you're going to be calmly present, then it's like, oh, we can get out of the depression and anxiety business and we can just be right here right now and we have the ability to shift, you know. Um, Mary, I, I love so much of what you're saying. It's mm -hmm. just hear you speak. It's, I always so enjoy it so much, <laughs> but, um, when you're talking and you brought up yoga a few times and I know I get this in my practice, well, but you know, yoga is less expensive. I can go to a $20 yoga class. I can take a video online. 
why, you know, I kind of my own guesses or thoughts, but I'm curious yours, like, why is this maybe more effective or different than than just learning to meditate? Like, what, what makes up the prevention? It's a great question. It just speeds up the process. Because even in yoga class, unless you have a yoga teacher that is giving you feedback about your postures, you could end up doing the posture incorrectly, and then you don't get the full benefit of it, right? And in fact, you might even hurt yourself. All right. And with meditation, I don't know if, if anybody else has this problem, but when I sit down to meditate, my brain just likes to plan and remind me of my to-do list over and over and over and over again. And, you know, if I have 40 years to devote to that, to meditation, it'll probably settle itself down. But see, I have to, I'm waiting a long time for that awareness to seep in there. But now if we are doing basically in a way meditation with feedback about how it's going. Now, this is the other explanation I used. It's like playing a game of hotter and colder with your brain cells. So if we're in this big building together and I hide a hundred dollar bill in the building and I say, you've got 20 minutes to find it. If you find it, you get to keep it. Well, if you just, you have this big building to search and you don't have any hints about where the hundred dollars is, you're probably not going to find the, the money in time. But if I say, okay, I'm going to follow you around and I'm going to let you know when you're getting closer to it and when you're getting farther away from it, you have a better shot of finding that $100. So if you are getting present and your brain is getting told, yes, this is it. Yes, you're, you're moving in the right direction. Keep doing it that way. You're going to find that posture a lot faster. I like that a lot. I also think of it a little bit like, um, you know, if you're starting at like super, you know, anxious or agitated and you walk into meditation class or yoga class and they're like, okay, get calm now. You're like, well, I'm like at like a hundred and meditation's at like, you know, five. How, how do I know I'm getting there? How do I figure out if I'm on the path? And I love that narrow feedback. You could only in each meditation, maybe only come down five each time, you know, but you wouldn't know if you're on there, you know, doing that. Whereas yeah, you don't even know if you're on the right track. Right. Yeah. With neurofeedback, you calm a little bit and, and us in the room would be like, wow, that was great. You got a, like 20% calmer than when you walked in the room. And then the next time you could be like, well, great. You started off here and now we're down to like 50. We're, we're on our way. We can, you know, that you really, even if you can't achieve that state that you're aiming for, each time you come, you can get closer and closer and know that you're you're getting, you know, hotter or colder. Right. It's encouraging. Yeah. You can see the progress, even if you don't feel it yet, because sometimes things have to change a certain amount before it translates into feeling different, but you've got concrete evidence that you're on the right path that helps you keep going. Yeah. 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 And it helps parents keep kids coming. Yes. And I mean, truthfully, all you have to do is improve the efficiency of your brainwave patterns by 25% for that to result in real world changes. You don't even have to like overhaul your complete brain. You just got to nudge it in a better direction. And oftentimes the brain, especially younger brains, will yes. test that and run with it and keep getting better even after you stop neurofeedback training. I mean, several research studies have showed that 
it, with long-term follow-ups that the neurofeedback trained group continue to maintain gains even after they stop training. Yeah. I tell parents it's the snowball effect. Yeah. Brain calms, then they make some changes to what they're doing, then their brain changes more, and then they, you know, they train more, and then they leave us, and then they keep implementing more and more and more, uh, and things just build and build. Right. And uh, you kind of alluded to an important point, though. This is another thing that I always do tell my clients, that change is never going to come from neurofeedback alone. Neurofeedback is often the missing domino that helps all the other ones fall into place, but it does not take the place of self-care stuff. So eating, sleeping, moving, those are basic activities that help your nervous system function optimally. So if you're not doing those things and you're just doing neurofeedback, you'll probably get some improvement, but it might be hard to get lasting, consistent improvement improvement. So neurofeedback is always part of a healthy self-regulation program. And this is something I talk to my clients about. Most of us have accepted, even if we don't do it, we accept that if we want to be physically healthy, we got to exercise and watch what we eat. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth is it takes effort to be mentally and emotionally healthy. A lot of us have this, you know, fantasy belief that someone out there is just living a charmed life without having to do anything to maintain their mental health. But I'm here to tell you that if anybody is remaining relatively content or on an even keel, they have practices, whether they realize it or not, they have practices that help them maintain that. And I think that, you know, if as a society, we could kind of accept that it does take effort to be mentally and emotionally healthy, we would all be better off. <laughs> and that's the other thing that I love about neurofeedback. Honestly, it helps select clients that are interested in what they can do to make their lives better. Because that's what it takes. You know, a therapist cannot change a client's life. Mm -hmm. They can give tools and resources. You know, but the, the client has to use the tools outside of the therapy office. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of the things I love the best, you know, is that I get these really highly motivated clients that want to do what they can do to improve their lives and go on and live their life. You know, I totally agree. Love that. Um, one question that comes up sometimes when I'm talking to someone who is either looking for neurofeedback or trying to decide whether they want to integrate neurofeedback into their practice for professionals is um, what's the dif what's the difference? What what why do people choose this particular eager to this way of doing neurofeedback as opposed to other ones? So there's there's quite uh, a variety of ones there, and I just I wonder if you can talk about why it is that you like the way that y'all are doing it at at IAN. You know what is the what okay. what what yeah. makes that separate? What makes it yeah? So okay so. You know, the joke with neurofeedback is the answer to any question is it depends and it's complicated <laughs> because brains are complicated. So it's kind of hard to sum all this stuff up. I will give it a try. So, yes, there's lots of different models of neurofeedback. The great thing about eager software is that you can use it with a lot of different models. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a versatile piece of equipment. 
but the way that I use it the most is with this, what we're, what we've been talking about, which is the arousal model, which says that your brain has to be able to match its level of arousal appropriately to the task at hand. And if you think about it, if, if, if any of us think about it, if we think about a time in our lives when we embarrassed ourselves the worst, it was probably either because our arousal was already too high or too low. And that could be because of substances or it could just been because we were stressed or we were really tired or what. But if you're, that's when we don't act our best, right? If our arousal is too high or too low. So what we're trying to do with our arousal model neurofeedback, again, is help improve the brain's natural flexibility and stability to be able to naturally match its level of arousal as needed and keep it there for as long as you need it there. Um, and then there was another reason why I started <laughs> to tell this road. Tailoring for each client, that's one of the big ones with the arousal models, being able to control and change whatever we need to um, for our clients' training. Yes. Yes. And, uh, oh, I mean, I think part of it too is it just speeds up the process too, because while, wherever you go, there you are and how you do one thing is how you do all things. So it gives the therapist a real world experience of how their clients kind of approach ambiguous tasks. Yeah. And, and while they're doing neurofeedback training, they're going to run into the same issues and problems that get in their way of being present in their everyday life. You're going to be able to see it happening on the therapist screen. You're going to be able to ask your client what they're noticing about their inner experience and like what's getting in the way of them being calmly present. And then you can coach them how to respond to those inner experiences differently, hopefully more effectively, and they can see how that changes their own physiology if they do it successfully. So again, it's just like this, this wonderful grist for the mill <laughs> where you're, you're having a real world application for how to help someone regulate themselves better. I like it. Yeah, that's really like cool. It. So it's, it, what you're talking about in a way is, uh, along with the neurofeedback is the, the raising awareness. Yeah. <clears throat> you were talking earlier about empowering clients, empowering people who come in for neurofeedback. And this is about helping them to have a, a raised awareness, a greater awareness about what is happening with their system so that they know they can learn. Finally, I guess the goal is, is what I'm hearing. The goal is to help people to learn to change their own brain state, even without neurofeedback, right? Their practice. Yeah, again, we want the freedom to, to choose. Um, hang on. You were saying something. Oh yeah. The awareness, the self-awareness piece, um, self the definition of self-regulation is being aware of your inner experiences without being controlled by them. So you're aware of them, but you can still choose how you want to respond based on your own personal values more often than not. Again, nobody does that perfectly. Um, and our limbic lava is never far from the surface. And that's why, you know, if we're too hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, whatever, that limbic lava has more of a chance to erupt. 
But if we get better at self-regulation, that's what frees us to choose a response. So ultimately, in a way, just as a species, I mean, as a species, I think we can look around and say humanity itself is kind of stuck in survival. And if we want to evolve, we got to get out of survival mode so that we can thrive. And and better self-regulation and increased self-awareness about your own internal processes and how to effectively respond to those internal processes so that you can still be the person you want to be, that's going to speed up the evolution of the human race. That's great. That's really great. Um, I wonder if you could talk, Mary, a little bit about um, the sort of setting goals with with uh, people who come in for neurofeedback uh, and tracking the sort of progress that they're making throughout sure. that process, just in general terms, what that looks like with your with your folks. Sure. Yeah. We goal setting is very important because it helps recruit the person's intentionality. Because as I was saying, Ed talks about the brain being lazy, but I talk about the brain being endearing because it always wants to do for you what you really want it to do. Now the catch is it has to be what you really want. It can't be something you think you should do or that other people think you should do. You have to want it for yourself. If you're not sure what you want, then your brain's not sure what to do. But the clearer you get about what you want, then it tries everything it knows how to do to make that happen for you. So the goal setting becomes like this subconscious roadmap that your brain will keep working on even when you're not consciously thinking about it. So one of the, so we have two different goal setting sheets. One of them says, I will know my training is working when basically that's asking the person what would have to change for you to believe that this works. And a lot of people will say some variation of, I will feel better. Well, that's a little too vague and that's too vague to like recruit your brain's resources. You got to make it more specific. So then the question becomes, well, if you were feeling better, how would your behavior change? What would a video camera be able to capture you either doing or not doing that's different than what you're doing or not doing now? And that's our second goal sheet. It says name three things that you are currently doing that you would like not to be doing and three things you would like to be doing that you are not doing. Okay. And it does not have to be three things. This is just a tool to like stimulate their thinking. But again, if you, so some people would say, I like to be, I want to exercise more consistently. Again, that's a great goal. It's a little too vague. If you start saying, I want to exercise three times a week on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, from 8 a.m. to to 9 a.m., then that helps your brain know what to do to give you what you want. So with neurofeedback, I have built-in ways of of measuring whether or not their brain waves are changing in the direction we want them to go. And that can be really encouraging and empowering like we were talking about before. But what is even way more important than that is whether they're getting the life changes that they want to have and the behavioral changes that they want to have. And so if we can spell those out and we recruit the brain's intentionality and there's a reason why this person is bothering to do this training and part of my neurofeedback explanation is always going to 
connect why this training will help with that particular life change they're wanting to make. Yeah, and and then it all works together to help give the person what they want. And we have a, a realistic way of figuring out if they are getting what they want from this training. That's great. And then during the course of the time that somebody's coming in, is it uh, one or two times a week? Um, so yeah, I mean, the, usually the least amount of frequency you would want to have is once a week. And if you, people could come twice a week or even three times a week, because mm -hmm. uh, again, neuroplasticity depends on sustained, frequent, intense repetition. And again, if you play a sport or a musical instrument, you know, the more consistently you practice, the faster you get better. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and then do you then revisit those goals and, and oh, yeah. how do you, do you talk about those, the, you know, how things, how things are changing. And I, I've heard you say before that, uh, you'll ask people about, um, you know, their, their level of energy, their mood, their sleep, their yeah, those are certain things. So, so mood, sleep, energy, and focus or mental clarity. Those are the big categories that neurofeedback is known to help with and whether or not those things are improving, help us as neurofeedback providers know if we're on the right track with which yoga posture we're trying to ask the person to practice, right? So that, those are areas I'm always looking for improvement in. And I mean, that, that includes a lot of problems with functioning and it honestly, if you can improve someone's sleep a lot of their other problems clear up significantly right but in addition to those big life categories that neurofeedback is known to help with we want the specific things that the client wants themselves and again it has to be something that resonates with their gut because then your salience network will turn your central executive network on and get you out of your automatic pilot mode like, unless it's something you really want, Ed's right. The brain's kind of lazy. It's not going to bother turn, getting off automatic pilot. It's not worth it to it. But if it's something you really want, then it's worth it to get out of automatic pilot and into your central executive network. And, you know, like they say in AA, if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. So whether we're doing talk therapy or neurofeedback, we have to get people to choose a different response that works better. And really the only way you can do that is if you're in your central executive network. That's great. And then is there a moment, like, how do you make the decision about like, well, you've done, you know, now, now you're ready. You're, I'm going to say you free or whatever, you know, you're, you're go out into the world and, and, and flourish. Uh, how does that, process happen or do do people tend to want to keep coming to neurofeedback for the rest of their days uh Some people love it and they treat it like the brain spa and they want to keep coming and i mean that's fine if they want to do it. but most people don't have unlimited time or money so usually we know it's time to stop when the original complaint that brought them into our office has resolved enough to their satisfaction mm. And that's a collaborative process of deciding that, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, 
And I wonder if for folks who are, uh, you know, really just considering, should I start doing in uh, neurofeedback? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, like, you know, besides of, well, yes, you should. <laughs> um, just in general, what could someone expect if they were, if someone, somebody got trained and began mentoring with someone, uh, how, how could they expect their practice to change? I mean, I know you've been doing it for long enough that it may be difficult to remember what, uh, you know, what counseling was like before the days of doing neurofeedback. Well, it just took too long. I mean, that's just it. Like, I do feel like I can speed up my good results because we are improving the brain's ability to regulate its arousal. Then it, whatever problem the person is contending with will get better, right? If you're, if you're, since all brain operations hinge upon how well your nervous system can regulate its arousal, then if you're, improving that core skill, all other things are going to be easier. So, and, and I think one of the questions that you had mentioned was, um, what do new neurofeedback providers kind of struggle with? Well, I do think sometimes what hangs people up is that they get, there is a lot of little details. There are a lot of little details and it's impossible to memorize them all. And sometimes it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. But what we want to keep doing is, is knowing that this is a self-regulation tool. And it's really just a way of helping people make the changes they want to make in their lives. And the EEG is just a window into their current experience so that you have more of an, you know, because people can present a really happy front or a really calm front. But on the inside, they could feel really anxious. Well, if that's going on, you're going to be able to see it as the neurofeedback provider. So it just gives you a, a better window into their experience so you know um, more effective strategies to, to try to teach them, to help them uh, change their inner experiences in the way that they would want them to go, if that makes sense. It does. So, and I mean, I do, I do think, you know, neurofeedback just fit with my theory of humanity and what creates change and stuff, because I never liked diagnosing people. I just feel like it's, you can't really label or put a limit on people's potential or whatever. So for me, the arousal model lens just, just really fits my viewpoint already it's like oh we can look and see um what is going on in their brain that's contributing to their problems and there's a way for them to learn how to change that i think it's hard when people don't kind of use that arousal model to view people and their problems if they're just trying to tack neurofeedback on as an extra tool with what they already do it often doesn't work as well as if you if you kind of get that this arousal lens helps explain a lot of people's problems and then um and then it just it works better yeah and there's a lot of commonalities with other modalities that work really nicely like somatic experiencing or other types of trauma work you know they all have that sort of lens so it's it's not a big leap at least i didn't find it to be one right um, when I moved into the arousal model, it was like this, this makes sense. Right. 
because we've all had the experience of being so anxious we didn't perform well or being so tired we didn't perform well <laughs> you know what i mean we we've all had real world experiences of that exactly mary how did you end up getting into neurofeedback i don't know if i've ever heard the story about you know because obviously you were a therapist and then i think added this on and then i did well it was with ed somehow i don't know how that yeah it was ed i think my lucky stars i mean it, it was just fortune i i mean i came to i wanted to live in Asheville because it's a beautiful progressive place and so i lucked out and got hired at this bigger private practice that ed was a shareholder of oh. he came in and he did a in-service with the neurofeedback equipment and showed the brain waves and talked about how people could learn to change that and i was just fascinated and that's when i drank the kool-aid never looked back and then he and I ended up splitting off and creating our own practice. That's awesome. Yeah. that's I, So it sounds like that was pretty early into your career. Yes. I, I mean, I had just gotten licensed and um, went into private practice back in 2004. And so then I started doing neurofeedback in 2006 and never looked back and have never regretted it. It's always so interesting to hear, like, because I started within, I think, three years of getting licensed as well. Um, and so it's interesting to hear the difference sometimes between those of us who started relatively quickly and those like Seaburn and others who, you know, practiced for 10, 20 years before adding narrow feedback. Um, the, those stories, they're so different, but there, there's always that point of like, I found this and then it was like, yes, this, this is the thing. And then you just dive in head first. Yeah, this is the missing piece. And and I do think you're bringing up a good point, too. It's hard to get good at neurofeedback if you just dabble in it. You really have to kind of commit to immersing yourself in it. <laughs> and if you're willing to do that, I don't think you'll regret it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, it's a wonderful modality, but it's not like adding on some DBT skills. Uh, right. It's, it's really changing a lot of what you do and how you practice. But I will say... Almost everybody I, I've talked to who's in it, it's for the better. And and for ourselves, for our clients, for everybody involved. Right. And again, it expedites the process. And, you know, as if you look at that doomsday clock, we don't have a ton of time. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic. I'm ultimately an optimist. But I do think, you know, we want to get our human species better regulated. So that we are, that we can, you know, start thriving together. That's great. Thank you so much for doing this today, Mary. This has been amazing. So thank you. Um, I uh, is there any sort of last things that you would like to tell folks uh, about the that for them to keep an eye out for or? Um, I don't know if you do the social media thing, if you want to share any of that ways, how people could follow you or. Well, we have finally start launched our email, our new email newsletter. So people can go to our website, www.ian-ashville.com. Okay. And that Asheville is A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. And sign up, you can either sign up as like a lay person or you can sign up as a professional. We have two different lists. And sometimes they get the same information. Sometimes they get slightly different information. That's but true. that's a way they could follow us. Awesome. Thank you. 
Thank you, you so have... much. This was fun for me. I love to talk about it. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. Any last thoughts, uh, Leanne? I'm just so thrilled, Mary, to have you on here. Your years of teaching and knowledge. Uh, it's just great to to hear, you know, how you talk about things and to share this with whoever might be listening. It's just, it's wonderful. So thank you. Well, you are so welcome. It's my pleasure.